BBCC episode 24, my realization of the day. Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal have only starred in a handful of films together, A Dangerous Woman, Homegrown, and lastly, Downey Darko, the film that we're covering today. An odd thing that would have been weird in some butterfly effect type shit would be Jakey G, after the success of Donnie Darko's breakout role, a few years later was considered to be Bruce Wayne slash Batman in Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, in which Maggie Gyllenhaal um, comes into the second movie as Rachel Dawes. So if Jakey G would have got casted in that movie, Maggie Gyllenhaal probably wouldn't have happened and we would have gotten Katie Holmes for both Nolan Batman movies. I don't know where I was going with this butterfly effect scenario, but that is not the first or the last thing that we will talk about here on the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. Hello, hello, it's your boy Devon Taylor, aka underscore Daddy Disco on Twitter. However, after today's episode, I might change it to Donnie Disco because that sounds pretty great as a nice alternative. This is the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club, a podcast exploring the subgenres of horror. I smoke a little bud with some of my favorite buds in the horror community talking our favorite spooky movies. It is week three of the Bloody Pumpkins Bonanza covering movies set on or around Halloween all month long. I usually have more intro stuff than this, but as a treat for this episode, we're going to go ahead and jump right into it as I already have my special guest waiting with me. She is a Rotten Tomato certified movie reviewer, has bylines across horror outlets such as Fangoria, Dread Central, and Rue Morgue, and was also recently published in the essay compilation Scared Sacred. It is Anya Stanley. Welcome to the show. Hey, welcome. Why, why did I say welcome? Thank you for having me. <laughs> no, it's all good. You know, stoner lapses here and there. I know. You forget yeah, where you're yeah. at. But uh, yeah. Probably not the best idea before recording, huh? Uh, no, it, it it's exactly the best idea before recording. <laughs> That's why I like progressively get higher throughout the show. Like I always notice that in my editing because like I start off smoking, I'm high before we start, and I'm high until the very end of it. So no, it's the best idea you can have. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so uh, I am so excited to have you on. Um, I have been reading much of your work over the past year or so. Like I mean, because you literally just pop up everywhere and like. I just see you always doing so much, uh, whether it be different writing things and, um, you know, just like your general involvement in the horror community. And I absolutely love that. So thank you so much uh, for taking some time to come on to the show. Like, um, so you've written for just about everyone. So like, what is your initial background in horror and then kind of leading you to where you are now? I am, uh, you know, the funny thing, um, my, my career so far has been kind of one big lucky fluke because I didn't go to college. I joined the Army straight out of high school. And uh, after that, I, I, I never went to film school. I It was kind of like that Tarantino thing where you I didn't go to film school. I went to films. And I yeah. just kind of watched a lot of movies. I've always been a horror fan ever since I was a kid. I've been a mer- very morbid kid. At one point, I wanted to be a, uh, a forensic anthropologist. 
And and so I've I've always had this fascination with the macabre and the weird and the strange. And so this movie that we're going to discuss is is right up my alley and um, I'm I'm excited to get into it. I'm excited to get into it too um because it is kind of one of those movies. We are talking about Donnie Darko today. Um we just have one movie today because there is definitely a lot to unpack with this movie. And it's kind of, uh, you know, I think it's kind of one of those seminal movies that people do get high and watch it and then just sit there and be like, whoa, do you get it? I don't know. You know, so I feel like it fits in there. And then it is also, you know, I think people forget the fact that it takes place the week of Halloween. I mean, it's, it takes place the entire month of October, um, the the movie. But so it is a Halloween movie. Um, some people might argue, is this horror enough? And we will get into that when we get into subgenre talk, because that's what this podcast is all about. So to kind of dive in a little bit more into uh, Anya's brain and uh, kind of what your taste in the horror is, um, I asked you to come with a couple recommendations, and I know you're still getting yours together, so I will kind of lead off the segment for this one. And um, my, I have two recommendations for the audience today, and I watched both of these uh, the other day as a random double feature. Me and my roommate were just kind of watching some movies, and the first one we watched was Stir of Echoes, um, released in 1999, starring the Kevin Bacon, and it's uh, one of those like late 90s, early 2000s, like just horror movies that like has an interesting premise but is like also just like kind of highly flawed. But I'd say also around this time in horror, people weren't really trying to get too inventive with horror at the time. So it's like, I like finding these movies where it's just like, it's a simple spooky ghost story, but it's also a great family movie. Like um, I realized watching Stir of Echoes, which is about a man after being hypnotized, is plagued with visions and he is trying to solve a mystery within his neighborhood. It's very simple. And I realized that Sinister and what was the other movie I thought of? And um, Vivarium, those two movies, oh, a big thank you to Stir of Echoes because they like took a lot of shit straight out of that movie, which I found interesting upon a rewatch. So um, Anya, have you checked out, have you seen Stir of Echoes lately? I have, and I've also seen Vivarium. And so I'm really interested to revisit it with Stir of Echoes in mind, because now that you say it, like I hadn't thought of it before, but now that you say it, yeah, there's a ton of parallels. And, and yeah, you could t- easily make the argument that they're kind of aping a lot of Stir of Echoes. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it was just a it was a weird connection that I did not that I did not realize because I just hadn't seen Stir of Echoes in so long. But I was like, huh, I was like the digging, the, uh, you know, the their lack of self-confidence and being a Mm -hmm. you know family man and being a provider and that kind of stuff I was like huh interesting and then some some a lot of sinister vibes though too with like the ghost elements kind of the way that they did that I'd say um when you watch Vivarium were you high for that because I I worry that that movie has a lot of bad trip potential it does (laughs) like towards the end (laughs) that third act but like see me watching it high though I was like by the like because I was like waiting for it to like get to more of the stuff in the third act so whenever that came I was like oh yeah this is like the the weirdness that I was waiting for with that movie um yeah Vivarium so now I do also like you said I kind of want to just like recheck it out because that was just a lot to think about as well it is it is I totally get it okay so one of them actually well one of them isn't horror it is true crime but 
the overlap between like the, the Venn diagram between horror fans and true crime fans is almost a circle. A lot of people who love horror really did true crime and they love uh, uh, dissecting the beast and dissecting human nature and figuring out um, how to avoid real world danger. And a lot of people do that through true crime. And so the true crime one that I want to recommend is American Murder, The Family Next Door, which is now on Netflix. It's this year, it's, it's 2020. And it's about the 2018 Watts family murders, which took place in Frederick, Colorado. And it's about basically about a guy who kills his wife and two daughters. That's that's what happened. And it's not so much the crime, but the way that the story was constructed in this, this film, uh, reconstructed, they use a ton of social media, uh, uh, media, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. uh, because Shannon Watts was she had a very big Facebook presence at the time. Oh, uh, okay. I the know wife. the one you're talking about now. Okay. Yeah. And so she kind of presented this, this idyllic, uh, uh, almost persona where, where if you didn't know any better, if you went by her Facebook post, it would seem like she's, she has a great life. She has this, this domestic bliss. She has these two wonderful children. She has a husband who loves her, but then we find that it, it wasn't that way. Um, behind the scenes. And the way that we learn that is through uh, records of phone records and text messages, which are also displayed on the screen. And we can track those with uh, testimony from the family members, from people who knew uh, the entire family. And they, they were able to say, yes, at this point when she texted this, she was actually having a really big fight with her husband. This was happening, that was happening. And the other part of the the documentary that was so compelling was to see the police body cam footage of um, their interactions with the the husband, the killer, and the way that he presented himself as a normal guy. Mm. And it's something that horror fans are intimately aware of, uh, about how manipulators and predators can be pretty normal on the outside. They don't always have this Henry Lee Lucas serial killer vibe to them. They can be pretty normal people. The Clove Hitch Killer is a good movie that that really exemplifies that. A literal Boy Scout leader who who is killing women, you know, who may or may not be killing women uh, in his spare time. And so, uh, yeah, the American Murder movie uh, documentary is really, really good. It is riveting and it's very crisp, an hour and 22 minutes. That's all you need. Oh, okay, yeah, that's that literally is like the perfect documentary time. I don't mm-hmm. venture into documentaries too much, and I especially have weird feelings about like true crime stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, because it can, like it can get exploitative. Yes, it can get exploitative, and then it also just like it it evokes a feeling in me that like because like me, I enjoy horror elements less for the fear aspect because like I don't really get scared by as much easily. Mm-hmm. So I I love horror just for like, you know, the sheer fun and entertainment, but then also like the storytelling opportunities. Like so like I guess that's what I look out for. So it's like the 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 true crime doesn't always like as appeal to me as much, but then I also I'm like I don't feel like I can enjoy the dark things being explored here because these dark things are real, you know. Uh- and do you think you do you tend to gravitate towards stories that are a little bit more fun in horror or or things that require like a heavy suspension of disbelief? You know, I go I go across the board there. It's just mm-hmm. like like I said like I just like the detachment from reality that mm-hmm. that and then exploring whatever themes that way. So it can still be something fun, but it can still be something dark, but then especially if it's going to be something darker, I want to be able that suspension of disbelief to be greater 
Yeah, you know? yeah, and true crime certainly won't offer that. They they're very it, real, aren't they? Exactly. So it's like you know, I I'm gonna talk in a few weeks. Uh, whenever I cover the Poughkeepsie tapes, we're gonna talk a lot more about this this topic as far as like the mm. true crime and like and and what I how I enjoyed that film versus true crime. So there there's gonna be uh so there's gonna be a lot more on that topic coming soon in the couple of weeks. My other uh, recommendation that I didn't realize that like I was watching it and then I kind of forgot that I was going to be talking Donnie Darko and then the tie together so perfectly is I had been having this craving, this urge, like, you know, like when you like just are craving to watch a very specific movie for some reason. And that movie was uh, the butterfly effect randomly. Ooh, yeah, there we go. From from 2003 starring Ashton Kutcher the butterfly effect, like, I remember it was a movie that intrigued me whenever I saw it when I was younger and remember being like, oh, hey, this is, like, really interesting. This is really good. And I was like, oh, the guy from that 70s show, you know, like, okay, I'm into this. And then I just hadn't watched it. And then, like, over the years, I was like, is that movie as good as I thought it was at the time? <laughs> like, because, like, I yeah. thought I was, like, on to something, you know? I was like, hey, like, th- this was, like, one of the first movies where people were like, oh, I heard that movie wasn't that great. I was like, no, 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 it's better than you think. Like, this mm-hmm. was like one of those first for me then. There's a few of those movies for me that, that are that are early 2000s, late 90s kind of movies that at the time I really connected with as like a, a 19, 20, 21-year-old. But, you know, going back to them now, I'm, I'm worried that some of them won't hold up. There was that comedy movie, Waiting, that was one of those. At, at the time, I thought that was the height of comedy. Comedy gold. I just watched but- that like a few weeks ago, actually. Oh um, man! I'll say. How did, how did it hit you? Was it? Wait, did you watch it for the first time? No, no, no. This was definitely oh. not the first time. And um, <laughs> as an older person who has been working the service industry for ten years, um, the comedy is good, but then there are some like, ooh. Uh, like oh yeah, kinda, that early two thousands problematic uh, humor. Yeah, a little. A yeah, there was there was definitely that, but overall, no, it 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 holds up. It it actually holds up pretty well. Um, but so does the butterfly effect. The butterfly effect, um, held up really well because I was like, okay, like this is I like when people do explore time travel in you know interesting ways, and uh, the way that they explored it in this one was very interesting. Um, and, you know, kind of going back in time through these journal entries and like that being the reason he was blacking out, like mm-hmm. all that was like just very, a very fascinating concept. But then I also did watch back. I was like, Ashton Kutcher is doing some acting because like every yep, yeah. time he would be in a different scenario because he had like lived a different life up to then, he had like slightly different mannerisms to his personality, like not like they weren't always like dramatically big, but you could notice like certain things and he brought together his mannerisms like really well and the emotional stuff too. Mm, you know what, what movie did that for me was where I, where I realized, Oh, this guy can actually kind of act a little bit was uh, wicker park with uh, Josh Hartnett. He did that too. Mm, the, yeah. Yeah. Where, where previously I had seen them as like, you know, teen actors. Like I was a teen when I saw them. And so I, you know, I saw them in roles that weren't really, you know, like with Ashton Kutcher, it's like, dude, where's my car and that 70s show. But um, with with Josh Hartnett and Wicker Park, yeah, I had seen him in like what he was in like Halloween H2O, you know, a couple of other things here and there before that. The, like the so faculty. Him, yeah, the faculty and seeing him in Wicker Park, it was it was 
was like, oh, he's he's actually an actor. He's not just like some kind of uh, unorthodox heartthrob. And so, uh, yeah, that was that was interesting to see. And the butterfly effect, I haven't seen that. That's another one of those, just like Wicker Park, that I haven't seen since it came out. And I'm interested to see how I will react to it now that I'm in my mid-30s, as opposed to when I originally saw it and I was younger and I just really connected with it and thought it was the edgiest thing in the world. Oh, yeah, I know, right? Like, it, it definitely <laughs> is like so angsty like it's so angsty but i love it though like it's it's my kind of teen angst and mm-hmm. uh the the coming of age story within the story as well as well as like all the greater themes with like time travel if you could change things it's a it's a big movie like cramped into like an hour 40 minutes hour 43 like i mean mm-hmm. it's it's good it's a it's a goodie um did you have one more recommendation before we move on <laughs> I did. Now, this one's an older one since you you opened the gate with Stir of Echoes. It doesn't have to be a new recommendation. So um, on Amazon, now this is, I have a caveat with this recommendation because I've only ever watched it while stoned out of my mind. I've never watched it sober. And this movie is from 1975. It's called Night Child, or uh, the alternate title is The Cursed Medallion. It's uh, an Italian mm-hmm. horror movie. Well, yeah, yeah, it's an Italian uh, uh sort of psychological thriller and horror movie. It's got that cursed artifact narrative where like there's um, this little medallion, this girl wears it and she becomes sort of possessed by the spirit of someone else. And this movie has, because it's mid seventies Italian director, you're going to have a ton of giallo elements. This very dreamlike ethereal quality to everything that's happening. This circular ending that goes back to the original uh, uh, beginning of the movie. You're speaking and, my language, girl. Oh man. Like if it, next time, next time you have some, some really, really good stuff, you know, uh, uh, give that one a spin. It's an hour and 35 again, nice and crisp doesn't uh it's it feels longer just because it's so dreamy and it takes its time with all of its shots there's a lot of long tracking dolly shots and there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on um it's a little wonky because you could tell like some of the effects were added in post and um you know mid-70s mo- low budget movie you know you're not going to get much uh uh you're not getting citizen kane yeah. but I-, I thought that the story was really well done and the visuals are just magnificent. And the score is very good. This was a Stelvio, I'm going to butcher that name, Stelvio Cipriani. 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 <laughs> I'll take it. Sounds close yeah. enough. And it's, it's, it's lots of pianos. There's, there's lots of dream sequences. There's like five or six dream sequences throughout the movie. And it's just one big fever dream. And it's one of those movies where if you watch it when you're high, you wake up the next morning and say, did I see everything I thought I saw? Did I did I experience everything I thought I experienced? Or was this just a mundane movie? And so I will have to revisit this sober at some point. But for now, it is a fantastic little movie that I've never heard anybody talk about. The Night Child or The Cursed Medallion. It's on Amazon Prime right now if you're in the U.S. The Night Child. I think I scrolled past it one night. Mm-hmm. But like... Uh, as I like kind of am going back and like trying to educate myself more with uh, different, you know, areas of cinema, uh, I realize the 70s might be my favorite decade behind like the 2010s, just because I mean, I've seen so many movies as of recently, but like the 70s, ooh, I'm all about them. I am all about especially Italian films because they just yes. made. They just made these just like real, I, like I love the the films that have like that like hazy glow to it, you know? 
oh, this is all about that. Okay, so this oh, is right yeah. up your alley. Oh, yeah. That sounds right up my alley for sure. And I always got the good stuff, so I am <laughs> I'm ready to go. So, speaking of ready to go, we are going to get into this week's episode's movie. But before that, just a quick reminder, five-star iTunes reviews. 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 Donnie Darko, released in 2001, written and directed by Richard Kelly. This movie wouldn't have happened without Drew Barrymore. She provided a lot of financial backing and just because of her involvement, uh, got like the high profile cast members that they were able to get, such as, you know, Patrick Swayze, Mary McConnell, Catherine Ross. So that's really cool. So shout out to Drew Barrymore on Mm -hmm. um, making this movie happen because... um, she, aside, a few years later, she would have some uh, controversial thoughts about 9-11, which kind of plays into some of the narrative um, surrounding, like, the performance of Donnie Darko here. And so it's, like, kind of interesting. So uh, apparently she's been known to have some some pretty radical thoughts. Um, I didn't, really? Yeah, I haven't, I haven't. I This is the first time I'm hearing of it. Yeah, I haven't I haven't read too much, but I just uh, I didn't want to get into too deep of a hole. But I was like, I was like, okay, so she has some she has thoughts about things, and that's kind of interesting. Um, so I gotta Google that. Yeah. Oh yeah, put that put that <laughs> in the Chrome kinda, list. Yeah, I gotta I gotta see what kind of crazy stuff she says. I'll I'll, I'll look into that later. But yeah, yeah, that'll be that'll be interesting. Yeah, super odd, and there are two different cuts of this movie. Um, I'll, we will, I'll like state that out the gate. Um, and Anya, you watched the theatrical version, correct? I did. I I found that I, you know, uh, a while back, uh, a few friends had sent me some of their old DVDs because I I had tweeted something along the lines of like, I I barely have any physical media and can't afford that stuff. I'm a single mom. And so, um, a few friends had sent me some of their, their old DVDs, their duplicates, or, you know, when you upgrade to a Blu-ray, you get rid of the DVD, that kind of thing. And so Donnie Darko was among them. I was shocked to find that I actually owned the movie and didn't realize it. So, uh, yes, what I have is, I'm holding it now, is the theatrical version, I'm guessing, because it doesn't say anything else. Mm -hmm. And um, it does have a whole bunch of special features. It's loaded with with commentary and the the Cunning Visions infomercials. There's a whole mm. thing about the philosophy of time travel book, apparently a website gallery, all of that stuff. Um, but all I did was watch the movie while stoned. <laughs> and th- I mean, that's all you need. I did a little bit of extra work here. So, yeah, the, the movie came out in 2001, and it was one of those movies that was like kind of in the early uh, eras of like internet promotion because mm-hmm. they did like have like a link to a website. And um, Richard Kelly actually wrote all the things like regarding the philosophy of time travel. Um, So it's interesting that so the movie comes out in 2001, right? It comes out like literally the the month after uh, 9-11 happened. And Mm. so people were obviously feeling very strong about the um, about the jet engine coming up throughout the film, you know, so people felt very strongly about that and that's like one thing that people attribute to the poor box office performance but then it eventually um kind of grew a cult following and then in 2004 
with it growing a cult following, it had very good, it had critical success, and it didn't have box office success, but it did do very well on DVD and midnight screenings. So mm-hmm. then um, they said, hey, why don't you cut together a director's cut? Um, they came to Richard Kelly, and this is in 2004, a few years later after they kind of saw the audience that it was growing, and they thought, you know, since it did get released at a um, troubling time that, you know, that kind of had a big impact on it. So they were like, let's re-release it, add whatever you want. They gave him some extra money. Um, they gave him 290000 extra dollars to um, put into a director's cut and do what he wanted to do. So he added back in. 20 minutes worth of scenes that were mainly like pretty much all the deleted scenes that are on the DVD were mm-hmm. added into the director's cut. And they added like a lot more, they added like a lot of subliminal images of like eyes and the ocean kind of, you know, for like the impending doom type thing. But then they also added in like title cards, like to like act as chapters for the film that basically explained the time travel shenanigans going on here the theatrical version is much more mysterious and ambiguous so um people are kind of divided between it on uh, a lot of people like the theatrical cut better because it preserves more of the mystery it's a little bit more random and you know people kind of thought that the extended cut was just like richard kelly kind of stroking his own ego to add in all the other time travel stuff and basically explain the movie to people which people liked that it wasn't a movie that was explained to him so interesting mm. right it is it is very interesting i i do kind of feel bad for bonnie darko because of the film itself because of the whole uh 9-11 timing just because you know like like the the spider-man movie which came out around mm-hmm. that time you know they had to uh Did no, you no, know no they it, didn't cut a scene it was a trailer which, which movie was it or or no it was the first one there was supposed to be a scene at the very end that yeah. had a shot of him swinging past the twin towers. They cut that out, and then they also added in the him, the very last pose of him on the American flag to like give go. people yeah. that patriotic ending. Yeah, I, I was wondering if that whole "you mess with us, you mess with you mess with New York, you mess with all of us" kind of scene was was shoehorned in there afterward too. Now that's that's really a that's a theme just with Peter Parker and Spider-Man in the comics like his very strong connection to the city of New York. So that's actually just kind of inherently into the character. But yeah, that was ah. another movie affected by 9/11. So it's it's interesting. Right. And then with Donnie Darko, you know, since the jet engine is is the problematic part in the wake of 9/11, it's it's a shame because it's not like they could just cut a scene with that. The jet engine is like the crux of the movie. It literally is, as we'll get into later, the artifact. Um, there's a lot to get into with um, the the time travel element. So yeah, the it definitely could not be removed from this film. They had no choice but to just stick to their guns and and put it out there. But then you right. know, it, it grew its audience with re-releases and the DVD and. Um, there are fans of the director's cut. Like, um, this is one of my favorite, uh, one of my best friends this is one of his favorite movies. And I text him this morning to, um, see what his opinion. And he actually prefers this one. Cause he's like kind of more interested in the mechanics of like the time travel stuff. So it's like, if you like it more ambiguous, then you would like the theatrical version better traditionally. Right. Now, you had done a, a Twitter poll, right, between theatrical I and, and director's cut? That's what I'm pulling back up as we speak. 
I did a ah, Twitter nice. poll, and with 70 votes as of the time of the recording of this, it was 80% theatrical cut to 20% director's cut. Oh, okay. So, so that's, that's pretty definitive. Yeah. yeah. Um, one major one major change is um, the opening musical cue is different. Um, yeah. They initially could not get the... Um, so they initially wanted to have Never Tear Us Apart by NIXS, but then mm-hmm. they couldn't get the rights to it, so then they went with The Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunnymen. And that okay. s- really <laughs> sets the tone perfectly for the film, in my opinion. So then, But then with uh, the extra money that they got for the director's cut, he was able to get the rights to Never Tear Us Apart, so the director's cut, it's replaced. And it mm-hmm. and it's such a whole different like tone setting beginning, massively and, different, yeah. And the lyrics for "Never Tear Us Apart" are like so much more on the nose to like what's going on. So like, I think there's like a disconnect between like, I think Kelly thought that people like it performed poorly because it was too confusing and like too ambiguous. So I think he thought that's what the uh like. Uh, box office failure was from so I feel like in the director's cut he wanted to add in more of this to like I mean the director's cut like because I watched these back to back today my brain's a little fried actually but Oof. um but really it's it really is just like all the stuff added in the director's cut it just spells out what's going on in the film I got to the end of the theatrical cut and I kind of had it figured out but then now I know everything and now I feel like I know too much but the oh. but the but the song is one of those things that like the, the lyrics literally spell out what's like happening the big picture right. here yeah two worlds colliding the whole thing yeah mm-hmm. you know the first time well when I watched the theatrical the other night um, I spent a good five minutes just squinting at the screen and trying to figure out if if there was kind of a, a Mandela effect going on because the version that I remember seeing had. Uh, uh, never tear us apart as the opening song, but in the version oh. I saw, it had the Killing Moon, and I was I was incredibly like confused. I was like, man, I swear it was it was a different song, and it was, and because as you mentioned, it's it's such a fitting song, and it's so much more iconic. It, even though the Killing Moon is a popular song, we we know that song, but um, there's something about Never Tear Us Apart that just that just hits different. It, it just yeah, it, it, it fits better. Yeah, that's interesting that you had. So I think you had a similar experience to me too, because like I was trying to figure out which version I had seen more. But then once I started watching the director's cut and I saw the added book inserts, I remembered that. So I was like, oh, okay, this is the version that I had seen before. But at mm-hmm. the same time, I remembered, I remembered both versions of the, the opening. So yeah, it's like the Mandela, like Bernstein, Bernstein type deal. Yep. And it's it's very trippy. So before we dig deeper into the film, let's go ahead and do the opening segment real quick, which is the genre grinder, where obviously we talk about uh, anything under the horror umbrella here on the podcast. But we like to go even deeper than that and kind of explore some of the subgenre stuff going on in the film. And this is a film that some people might not describe as horror. They might say, um, I don't know, further into sci-fi, I would... Mm -hmm call this a a sci-fi thriller but i'm one of the people i'm one of the people that says well thrillers are horror movies because it's Mm -hmm. it's under the umbrella to me 
you know? Yeah, sure. That's fair. Yeah, I, I definitely see it as a sci-fi. Uh, yeah, sci-fi thriller is probably the best part with horror elements. And I think that a lot of people might call it horror just because it speaks in this language of impending doom. Yes. Um, but I, I don't. And, and speaking of, I was actually pretty nervous going into this movie because I have generalized anxiety disorder, which which I, I you know, I, I self-medicate for, so to speak. But I was worried that that sense of impending doom constantly woven throughout the movie combined with, you know, my my cannabis sour watermelon fruit chews might not you know make the best combination but luckily it it worked out i think because i had seen the movie before so i knew where everything was going yeah you were like worried it was gonna like amplify it yes very very worried but it it didn't happen i ended up just worrying myself into a a frizzy into a tizzy for nothing which is anxiety in a nutshell (laughs) yeah i mean that literally is what it is and i mean um i'm very similar as well you know i very much use like cannabis to self-medicate my anxiety but my anxiety is a little bit different like it's more of like a more of a personal like internal like my brain moves too fast like kind of anxiety versus Mm. like a situational like grand in the in the grand scheme of the world i am like the complete opposite i'm just like hey everything's good like we're chilling it's gonna work out we're rolling you know like the this i mean 2020 is you know i'm i'm glad i have you know that outlook versus you know the impending doom of it all so like the watching the film today like also like kind of tapped me into that especially mm-hmm. with certain characters that you see in this film being like oh they're definitely a trumper they're definitely a trumper <laughs> you know so it's i think like, there's some kind of effect going on to where like now when i watch movies i i wonder who would have voted for trump or or actually i usually don't have to wonder at all you could you could point them out pretty quickly yeah. And yeah, there are definitely a couple of characters in this movie that you know think that there are very nice people on both sides, you know. <laughs> there's there's definitely a lot of those characters in this movie. Yeah, for sure. So, so kind of going back into the film and to give you guys a quick recap, I will say um we are going to spoil this movie. So if you have not seen Donnie Darko, I mean it's kind of old at this point. It's almost 20 years old. But if you still haven't seen this film and you don't want it spoiled, this is a movie that you go into. The less, the better. So pause the episode, watch the movie, then come back. So the general gist of the movie is um, Donnie Darko, played by Mr. Jakey G himself, is a, a very, very angsty teenager. Um, he's, you know, too smart for his own good. And he is, you know, we find out he's already kind of has a troubled past. He's on medication, like all these different things. And then now he is getting plagued by visions of the end of the world. And I do think that like that apocalypse, like impending doom, like vibe, like firmly puts it like in the horror camp. Like I'm one of the people that say like if there's a monster in the movie, it's it's a horror movie. So I'm like King Kong, it's in, you know, I'm one of those people. I'm just sure, sure, yeah. I, I go with the uh, the video store rule when I'm in doubt. You know, if if you owned a video store, where would you put this movie? Which section would you put it in? And I do think I would put it. Um, I'd put sci-fi and thriller and horror close to each other. Yeah. They'd all be in the same section of the store, and Donnie Darko would definitely be on the edges between sci-fi and thriller for me. Like this is a, it's a genre film through and through. Like. Like, mm-hmm. in just, like, the whole, like, in the general sense. Like, if I had to ever, like, make an example, like, what is just a pure genre film, this, like, would definitely fall into there. 
Yeah, and if someone were to argue for it as horror, I wouldn't give them any crap about it. Kind of yeah. like Zodiac or Silence of the Lambs. I while I may not think of it as horror, I would I would I would allow it if someone were to say, uh, no, that's my favorite horror movie. Fair enough. You're at least open. You're open to the interpretation of it. Yeah, so. yeah. And as long as we have that, you are welcome here on the podcast. So it's all good. <laughs> that's good. So so in the film, we it opens up to Donnie Darko. He has woken up on the side of a cliff. We find out that he has sleptwalked there, and he rides his bike back into town. So Donnie Darko, after he sleepwalks, and um, he he's known for these different bouts of sleepwalking, and then he makes it back to his house. But then later on, he kind of has another one of these instances where he sleepwalks out of his room, narrowly avoiding being crushed by a jet engine that crushes his house. And this kind of kicks off a string of events that that set into you know donnie kind of seeping his way through the town leading to an event that's gonna eventually end in like everyone's doom that's the simple way of attempting to explain this so like on on your first rewatch like what what was what were you looking at first were you kind of looking at Donnie's like kind of noirish kind of journey here or were you more interested in like kind of the the concept outside of it because like I, I've seen different interpretations some people don't like the character of Donnie and I don't think you're right. necessarily supposed to but like so where are you looking at the film from right I my first and foremost when I decided to revisit the film uh, I had looked at at Donnie, the character, because in my memory, I remember him as kind of an edgy teen, a very angsty teen. And and even upon revisiting, I, I kind of confirmed it that you can tell that a, a guy in his mid-20s wrote this story and made this movie. You yeah. know, Donnie has this heavy Holden Caulfield vibe to him. You know, he basically calls everything in this world phony. He has this angst that I would associate with my own youth when I thought I knew everything. And, and I could see why I really connected with this movie at, at that age. And consequently, I could see why I look back on that time and this revisit with more life experience. And I kind of roll my eyes a little bit at the scenes that def- depict this youthful moxie, like the scene when, when he's um, talking about the bridge between fear and love with his teacher, and he kind of gives her what for. Um, these scenes kind of uh, remind me of myself at a, at a younger age when I, I thought I knew everything and I didn't actually know shit. So it's, it's very interesting to look back on that. And I can also see how it would resonate with so many people, why Donnie would resonate with so many people. I, I remember having several friends when I was in the army with the countdown clock tattooed on their arm or their back. Oh. Um, be, yeah. A lot oh. of people like, like I could, I could think of at least four people off the top of my head. Oh, that, no, that that's had way that too countdown many. Clock. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> and you know, what are you gonna do? That was see, I was in the army from 2005 to 2011, so mm. it was it was when the movie was gaining that that cult following, and it was definitely a DVD that was passed around a lot in the barracks, and mm-hmm. so um, with with a lot of people who were like me in their in their early 20s, and so uh, I could see why it resonated. And I think you're right. I do think that Donnie is a character that we're not necessarily supposed to love, even though. He is the hero in the the archetypal hero's journey. He's totally like this Luke Skywalker character in Star Wars, but he's just it's a darker movie with a more flawed character. And I'm I'm okay with that. I don't I don't see that as a negative within the framework of the movie. Oh yeah. Like 
it, yeah, he's definitely, I like the Luke Skywalker, like, comparison, mm-hmm. even though, like, I'm trying to think of someone that's, like, even, like, someone, like, more just, like, uh, I don't know what the word is. Like, he's just, like, so aggressive, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but then at the same time, like, I do kind of, you know, you roll your eyes a little bit, but at the same time, it's, like, when you kind of think of the kids of that time, I mean, this was, or this was 1988, even, Um, Mm -hmm. But even still kind of, yeah, they kind of did more think like the kids of like the early 2000s. And and it's like, you know, you see how just like everyone, it's fuck every other word, you know, like and that that is just like something that I've always admired. Like who gets good dialogue right between teenagers is whenever they like because like teenagers did talk like that. Like when you were a teenager, you cussed every other word just because you could. You know, and like there's the scene where they're on the corner smoking the cigarettes and just like one kid's like, isn't this good shit? And then Donnie's like, it's a fucking cigarette, man. <laughs> so it's like I like that there was like the dichotomy, you know, it's like of like, you know, the teenagers that like thought they were cool. But then he, there was like Donnie who I never realized like because he kind of like throws it away when he's talking to Gretchen. But like he was held back. He was held back. And they also don't say how far he was held back. So he's right. also older than all of his contemporaries too. And that's something I like was like, huh, oh, that's an interesting like detail that they throw in, but then also don't really like touch on much. But it's very much there though. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He's he's an interesting character and he is it is totally a superhero movie, like in its in its structure and in its cadence. Um he he's got this superpower in sowing chaos, I guess you could say. Um I'm actually reading off I'm, for the first time, I'm reading off of my notes that I wrote while I was stoned. And so this is going to be quite the journey because these might not all make sense, but apparently they made sense to me at the time. But I do see uh, Donnie's superpower as as sowing chaos. It, am, it amps him up. He, he paces and he rambles excitedly to, to uh, Jenna Malone after he trolls Jim Cunningham. He fights crime, technically. Um, and... In doing so, he uses these elemental powers. He uses his strength. He's got mm-hmm. super strength that can bury that axe into the school water pipe mm-hmm. and into a solid bronze mascot. No normal teen could have done that. No grown man could have done that. And yet Donnie is somehow able to do it. He uses fire to burn down uh, uh, Jim Cunningham's house. He mm-hmm. floods the school. He uh, Now, I'm not sure if this is accurate or not. But what it looked like to me is that he constructs that time portal from the water, from the flood. Is that what happened? Kinda. So Kinda you're, like a waterbender? So I love that you caught all of those things watching the theatrical <laughs> one and you didn't need those things explained out to you. You caught all those things and mm-hmm. all those things they does is like one, it's mirroring the actions of the people in the book that they're reading, the destructors. Because they, like, flood a house, then they set it on fire. He does the same thing. And you talk about his superpowers, right? One, this movie has a lot in common with Chronicle, I'm thinking. But not not in as dark of a sense. But what I didn't realize in rewatching this, and then it's enforced even more in the director's cut, is the this film is interesting in mixing sci-fi with religious elements into time travel so basically Mm -hmm. what you learn through more of the details through the philosophy of time travel book and they just show pages of it during transitions of the director's cut is donnie is a chosen one they don't 
we don't know why he is chosen or you don't know when they're chosen. But mm-hmm. so he's chosen because basically what we're seeing in the film, you know, because like you, we see the film, it starts October 2nd, goes all the way to October 30th. And then at the end of the film, when there's the big vortex in the sky, we go back to October 2nd. What we're seeing in the in the main timeline of the film is not the primary timeline, quote unquote, of the film. It's the tangentive timeline. So someone has already time traveled and fucked some shit up. Not necessarily Donnie. It's implied that it could be Donnie, but it's also implied that it was um, Grandma Death, the Sparrow Lady, mm. because she apparently was changed one night after she saw some shit. She was changed, right? Because after right. after she had wrote this book. So she time traveled at some point. When when you time travel, it creates this in, in typical time travel movies, it would create like a branch of like an alternative timeline, but then there's like still mm-hmm. the main one and then sometimes you like loop back around to like break that timeline off. Yeah, they Doc kinda, Brown totally wrote this on a chalkboard in, in, like, I think it was Back to Future 2. Yes, and this film, as pointed out by the teacher, follows the general principles of time travel, like, as laid out by Stephen Hawking, which is the same ones for Back to the Future and other time travel stuff. But, however, this is where they in- include the new, like, religious stuff to it. So, so she time traveled at some point, messed something up, so now they're in this ta- tangentive timeline. The tangent of timeline, as described by a title card in the film, it says that it is now the epicenter of chaos. It's going to not be able to sustain itself because there's a primary timeline going on still while this tangent of one is going on. So something's going to happen and it's going to implode on itself. That's what the vortex is at the end of the film. Now, is that vortex, I, I couldn't tell by watching the film or any, any of my previous viewings of it, is that vortex something that naturally occurs or is that something that Donnie specifically has to have a hand in? Like, Because I'm wondering how much of a role he has to have in it and why he's chosen. Because I'm wondering if that jet engine, did it just rip off on its own or is that another one of Donnie's powers where he can kind of, so, like a telekinetic thing? So... Yes and no. So the powers, because they do lay this out in a title card in the director's cut, is that his powers are listed as, um, it says, a form of telekinesis, mind control, can conjure fire and water, as you pointed out. That's in the director's cut? This is in the director's cut. Holy so crap, you, I you got So you got all of this without seeing that, though. Like, you're, you were right on the dot. So yeah, but it's I'm going to blame Smokey's edibles on that for opening my third eye there. <laughs> there you go. Because <laughs> and, and they're not all in the literal sense, because like, I mean, he didn't conjure the water. He broke a water line and he didn't conjure mm-hmm. the fire. He set it on fire. The mind control. What I find is interesting is kind of Donnie's influence on people, his influence on the teacher, on um, on the school, the way that uh, the kids in the school are thinking when he has these, you know, outbursts or calling Mm -hmm. out the Jim Cunningham guy, Patrick Swayze. And, you know, it's like that's his, like, kind of form of mind control is he has, like, influence over people. Okay, yeah, yeah. The telekinesis is interesting because, so, like, basically the way they explain it is at the end of the film, there's the vortex, and Donnie has influenced all these different events to happen 
that lead to his family taking that traveling trip to the dance competition or whatever, and then coming back. Whenever they're coming back, the plane goes into the vortex, and when that happens, it rips off the engine that then falls back into the timeline. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Than so what I was it fell back. Come up with. So it fell back into the primary one, but so now here's what's confusing: is yeah, who chose Donnie? So basically, his conversation with his teacher, he says they're talking about like, um, time travel is okay, like because like, or they're talking about like predetermined destiny, right? Yeah. And your predetermined path as chosen, as laid out by God. And they say, and Donnie says, okay, but what if there was a way that you could see your path? That's that little jelly thing that's like coming out of his chest and like how mm-hmm. he's getting these visions of what's going to happen on October 30th. And then the, do- uh, the professor says, then that would go against, then, then you're like, you're contradicting yourself. And then that goes against, um, because then if you go against God's predetermined path, then did it exist to begin with? And then right. Donnie says, but it won't it won't destroy everything and change everything if you make changes but stay within God's path. Right, right. So it's a guiding it's more of a guiding force than than something that is your hard set path. Like once it's there, you don't necessarily have to follow it, but it would behoove you to do so. Yeah. And then, so then the, the time travel stuff, they also talk about, they also label other facets into this, this whole scheme of things. So there's, they talk about the manipulated dead, which is Frank, Frank, the, the bunny, who is mm-hmm. the guy that runs over Gretchen at the end of the film. And they say that he runs over Gretchen and he's there delivering all this information to make sure that Donnie follows the path of setting all these chain events off to where that jet engine is going to fall through his house and the timeline corrects itself and this tangential one's going to implode on itself. So that's what right. Frank is there to do to like okay. obviously make sure that things things happen and but then Gretchen is like a uh they called it an not insurance plan but an insurance plan that she's there as like a random thing that could influence the outcome of Donnie making everything happen on point but then Frank runs her over because she's the only thing that can like stop everything from Donnie making sure everything mm-hmm. happens according to plan so it's right and all of these characters are are manipulated around kind of like these like like uh, uh yes. chess pieces yeah yes so Donnie is the living receiver is what they call him but he's also the uh, the manipulated living is what they call him because he is just like that's the one thing that is just like truly not explained is why he is chosen for this he just is because i guess he's like connected to all these things that would lead to this event and then he still has these memories afterwards and he after having all these events you know he kind of has the answers that he was, you know, pondering to himself about like existential death and his doom and then just kind of chooses to accept his fate and just die instead of, you know, because if he now if he dies when the jet engine crashes, he doesn't influence 
any of those events that like happened pre pre hand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, my map of the movie. It's tough. It is. It's tough because you know, with time travel movies, with a lot of sci-fi movies, there's always some paradox that you kind of just have to set aside in order to enjoy the movie. And the the one for this movie is, you know, if this guiding force, whatever it was, is powerful enough to manipulate all of these characters and all these players on this board, why couldn't they just collapse the, the 10 genital universe on their own? Why did they need a human receiver to do it? But I don't know. I kind of treat that as the same way I would treat a, uh, uh, you know, time travel paradoxes in Back to the Future where I just kind of sit back and enjoy the movie. And if I think about it too much, especially on edibles, it's going to be a bad time for me. (laughs) Well, see, that's where my theory comes in is what I'm thinking is they have a receiver do this because it was because they'd never touch on this. Like this is me totally just making it up that I think that grandma death is the one that originally traveled through time that caused the the chink in the the timelines oh like they never they never say it but what they do say is there was one night that she had that she got a message and she saw some shit and she was never the same afterwards Mm -hmm. so my theory is that would make sense yeah and so so that's my theory so that means donnie has to act as the counterpart now like okay you fucked it up and cause this chain of events now we have to have somebody else cause a chain of events to balance it i think right yeah yeah she definitely yeah she couldn't have written the book without that whole time travel thing and and she's kind of like the oracle like in in old greek mythology stories you know she's like she forecasts the hero's journey to the hero himself she kind of whispers a bunch of stuff to him Mm -hmm. and so it it would make sense that she's the living manipulated the manipulated living Frank is the manipulated dead. Donnie is the living receiver. Aha. There we go. <laughs> uh-huh. I would have <laughs> never gotten that sober. It's funny that you say that because you were worried, like, in when we were messaging before, you were like, I don't know if watching this high is going to help or is it going to make it worse. And, like, like, that's, like, what I like to think about, like, is my reason for watching movies high all the time is, like, Cause like, otherwise, like I'm not going to focus, but then like once I'm high, then I'm like tuned in and I'm like seeing all the things. Cause it's like, I don't know. It like slows down for me. And I feel like Neo figuring movies out and it's just zeros and ones, but they're red instead of green. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know if we would have gotten to, um, the, these conclusions and who knows if it's right. And like, that's why I was saying like, I even got just more information because of watching the director's cut because like they just put this plain text, like literally just like it was literally just like visions of the book, like pages Mm -hmm. of the book. So it's like I but I did figure out the majority of this, like after just watching the theatrical version, like before I looked at like the comparison and and I just saw it as like this weird loop because then I was like, okay, but what if, you know, I, it was, I had a point that I was like, what if Donnie did this and then it created like this other timeline, you know, but then what if he still would have made the events, but just like, they just ha- didn't happen to be in the plane at the time, you know, mm-hmm. the plane in the air at the time. How much would that have thrown things off? Or if he wasn't in his bed when the jet engine fell through. Yeah. 
So then I was like, okay, he gets to the end of the movie and the vortex happens and he's taken to October 2nd. And then if at that point, what if, so if, what if at that point he gets out of bed, avoids death again, but then, like I said, he just influences like the events and then we get to the vortex and he hasn't made it. So it's like, now we have two definitive timelines that like can exist at the same time. So yeah. I guess, yeah, it is, it was a very necessary death for Donnie Darko, I guess. Yeah. That. And it's interesting because it's, it's one of those, the, the structure of the movie is one of those monomyths. It's like, like a sci-fi movie that you would see. Um, like there's this hero is Donnie and he begins in this, this regular world setting, even though in the beginning of the movie, it is filmed like a dream, like that bike ride home with with uh, uh, in excess playing that could have been shot and edited differently. But by following along with Donnie in these long tracking cuts, um, the sequence has this feel of a continuous dream or a series of beautiful, vivid, but fleeting imagery images and the the feelings associated with them. It's this idyllic domestic bliss. It's really nice, but it is supposed to be kind of a regular world setting for this for this hero. And then he gets this call to adventure you know, he he sleepwalks to Meek Frank, who is like kind of like a mentor, like the Obi-Wan to his Luke Skywalker. And he faces an ordeal, which is basically to save the world. He's he's told you have this amount of time left, you know, and, and you have a job to do during that that time. And he essentially has to do it. That's 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 it. That's what he has to do. And mm-hmm. I think what's interesting is that Richard Kelly obscured all of that, the the ordeal, the adventure, and the task itself under all of the symbolism and vague parallels and synchronicity so that you get this general sense that the reality that we know and that we see isn't all that there is, that there's something more to it. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's interesting because a lot of these, these heroes' journey are, heroes journeys are very um, – structured and very set up in a way that is almost spoon-fed to the audience in a lot of the sci-fi and adventure movies that I'm thinking of. But in this movie, it's it's very obscured and very opaque until almost the end of the movie when you finally figure out what exactly he's going for and what exactly his whole task was to do throughout the movie. Yeah. And yet you're entertained the whole time. Yeah. And it's, and it's like, I like that you get that experience more watching the theatrical version. So, like, that is my conclusion after watching both versions is to watch the theatrical version. And then Mm. if you want to know more, watch the director's cut. But if you like the journey that you went on and, like, figuring it out yourself and, like, also just, like, not having a definitive answer and just kind of being able to plug it in. Because one other aspect that they touch on in the film is, like, there are these religious aspects and then there was this conversation between Donnie and his therapist about the difference between atheists and agnostics Mm -hmm. and like basically like Richard Kelly this is like his agnostic manifesto blending you know these religious elements with the sci-fi elements and if you but if you so if you like the more open-endedness and ambiguity I would stick to the theatrical version and I also do think that um the the other song though the killing moon fits way better at the beginning in my opinion so really oh yeah no yeah i thought see yeah i thought we were on the same page and then you'd said something like a minute ago and i was like oh wait no we are the opposite i think that the killing moon 
sets a more like I don't know it's like a little more eerie but then like I said like the lyrics like aren't as like on the nose as the um never uh never tears apart because I think mm. never tears apart I think the lyrics are like too on the nose ah okay that like I said like, like I like the mystery I like a more mysterious like tone to it yeah I thought I thought that never tears apart kind of had more of a of a waltzy macabre feel to it it felt very slow and, and drawn out and exaggerated and to me that really fit with the visuals that we were seeing in that bike ride in the beginning with you know these yeah. long takes these these a dreamlike sequence that that wasn't a dream well, i mean you could call it a dream in that it's in it takes place in the tangential universe yeah I think you called it yeah the the tangentive timeline is what they call mm-hmm. it and um and yeah and and you did make the point that you know with never tears apart it's like kind of matches the more like idyllic like suburban neighborhood that we're being taken through but then like with the killing moon it's like a little bit darker so you're like still seeing those things and then you're like but something is up something like different like you don't Mm -hmm. know what's gonna happen and I feel like it like really captures like that feeling of the characters um so as we start wrapping up the conversation about this movie we got to just shout out a lot of some of the more random things that we enjoy about this film um you know one I definitely want to make a shout out to the cast you have Maggie Gyllenhaal which is great because I love at the beginning like the the dinner scene which is pretty infamous Mm -hmm. for this movie um like the real sibling tension vibes like you feel that and like that's just like great (laughs) that they got to do that you know and it is kind of a shame that they haven't really done more films together like it's super weird. Yeah. yeah, I agree. There's there's this um there's a lot of familial disharmony in, in the movie and it kind of contrasts with that opening sequence, the bike sequence where he's he's running best past his family and it seems very like white picket fancy, you know, and it seems like you know, the, the the younger the youngest sister is is jumping on the trampoline and the uh the father, he's he's watering plants and, and you know, it's it's very very domestic bliss like. But then in the very next scene, you had that dinner sequence with the family and, and it's total disharmony. The siblings are fighting with each other, they're fighting with their parents over politics, they're mm-hmm. getting really petty. Donnie, you know, right after that, Donnie snaps at his mom, he calls her a bitch. You know, it's 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 a whole thing. Oh, and like the way that he talks to his mom in this, like in the sad Can part- you imagine? Can you even imagine? See, I obviously <laughs> couldn't imagine like doing it to my parents, but then it's like I've also been that friend that is like there at the house when like one of my friends is talking to their parents that way, and then mm-hmm. like I just like witness it and like how some parents just like take it, and I'm just like, oh my god, it's one of the that was like one of the most awkward feelings as a kid when you're like yeah. seeing that interaction between like. So, yeah, like, seeing Donnie, the way that he talks to his parents is just, like, yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, what's uh, what's something else that you, that kind of just stuck out to you on this rewatch? Well, the, right after that, uh, Donnie's mom goes to uh, Donnie's father and says, you know, your son just called me a bitch. And he, he says very quietly, very coolly, he just says, you're not a bitch. You're bitching, but you're not a bitch. And that is the line right there that that's it that's all you need that makes you fall in love with that family because it's 
it's so cool and it's such a roll with the punches kind of thing that a lot of families, I imagine, have to deal with. It, that that was the moment that we fell in love with the family, just like the the parents in Poltergeist, you know, when they had mm-hmm. their their moment where they're getting high on the bed and dad's reading his Reagan book and they're fooling around with each other and just being playful. This was that moment in Donnie Darko that made you actually kind of care about this family a little bit more than you might have without that one line. Yeah. All it did was take all it did take was those like few scenes to kind of establish like that family vibe. And that's something I've really yeah. grown to appreciate lately in movies like like some of the movies I mentioned at the beginning of the film, like Stir of Echoes or Sinister or, um, you know, the Conjuring films like or these like really strong senses of family. And like it doesn't take much. But when you just like have those scenes and you put them in and you just like get the good performances out of them, like you don't have to do anything fancy, you know, and that is just like exactly. they were lucky to just like have that chemistry um, so many great mm-hmm. quotes though, because yeah, you're you you you're not a bitch, you're bitching, but you're not a bitch is great line. <laughs> um, of course, yeah. there's the exchange between Maggie and Jake when he says you're such a fuck ass, and then she goes, you know what, you can go <laughs> suck a fuck, and then he's like, how can you suck a fuck? And I mean, it's one of those things like it's like kind of weird that'd be like siblings like kind of arguing about like with that like kind of like sexual undertone and it was like ew you guys are fucking weird like stop that like go away <laughs> you know but that's how you feel like uh, with siblings sometimes like uh really 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 great um it got a shout out um this was like one of patrick swayze's like last great performances because it was like yeah. a cool it was cool him playing a character against his typecast i mean he was like still playing that super ultra likable guy but he didn't have that light in his eyes like he usually has Mm -hmm. you know he was void of that and he like brought that through subtly and just like his character of course turns out to be a kitty porn dude like uh yeah he had a kitty porn dungeon was they made sure to tell you that it was a kitty porn dungeon disgusting Mm -hmm. um there's a great line where uh donnie says He's like, he's like, you know what? I don't know, but he's like, I just fucking, you're like the fucking Antichrist, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm just like, ah, oh, that's so funny. And then it like turns out that he was just like, you know, a super fucking crazy person. And uh, yeah. also uh, shout to Jenna Malone, a young Jenna Malone. Um, I know. They have a really great chemistry together too. And I really like the way that they developed this teen romance, like very authentically, in my opinion they do and she's great and who would have thunk you know watching that that she would be you know the powerhouse that she is today in so many movies and and in so many uh nicholas winding reference uh collaborations she is uh she's great and she's got that presence you know she can she can hold the frame with just a scowl and and i love it yeah um they she is really great and i i love jam alone i mean yeah who would have thunk that she would go from um, you know, this kind of awkward, charming girl in Donnie Darko and then go on to fucking corpses in the Neon Demon. <laughs> love yeah. Jenna Malone. I love her so much. She's a great Instagram follow, too. Just randomly shouting that out. Like, if you if you want to follow a good follow on Instagram, Jenna Malone, she's like the sweetest mom ever. Aw, <laughs> you wouldn't think about it by all of her roles in, the, in, in her recent <laughs> movies. But yeah, yeah, she seems great. 
Yeah. Uh, I guess while we're doing shout outs, I would shout out Drew Barrymore's role as the the teacher in one of the teachers in, in the film. Um, she's really cool in that she's kind of an agent of chaos like Donnie. She keeps trying to change things like that's her entire role in the movie. But she the, shakes like, things up constantly. The positive by, end, though. Yeah. And, and she she like immediately when a new student comes in class, she tells her to sit next to the boy you think is the cutest. There's no reason to do that other than to shake the table. Yeah. And yeah, between her and Donnie, Donnie vandalizing the school for seemingly no reason. We find the reason later, but but seemingly no reason. She's fired later for teaching these subversive texts. And so she tries to leave a little beauty in her wake by writing, you know, cellar door. And she's like Donnie in where she can kind of see the beauty within chaos. And and Jenna Malone's the same way. Her uh, Gretchen's the same way. She wanted to save her first kiss with Donnie for a time when the world was beautiful, she said. And later she does get that first kiss with him, but in a whirlwind moment of pain and despair after she's been humiliated. Yeah. And so I can see you nodding like crazy, like over there. <laughs> uh-huh. like, uh, mom, you know, the mom describes having a wacko for a son as feeling wonderful while she looks at Donnie with tears in her eyes. She's overwhelmed with joy, even though he's a chaotic character. And so there's this, this general language of chaos being beautiful throughout the whole film. And again, I'm not sure I would have caught that uh, had I not had the, uh, the cannabis help. It always helps to have a little good, <laughs> good, like you said, to open that third eye and catch yep. all those little things. I will end on a positive note for the director's cut is there are some um, there's a really great scene between Donnie and his father. Um, there's a few uh, extended scenes that involve his father. Uh, Papa Darko is pretty great throughout the film, but there's a scene where um, he really like sell like pretty much tells him like I used to be a smart ass like you. I was crazy, but you're not crazy. And, like, he's, like, there's this, like, really great moment of, like, them, like, um, relating to each other a little bit. Like, because you see Papa Darko, like, laughing at all the inappropriate things his kids say throughout the yeah. entire film. Like, when uh, Donnie's in the uh, office for telling the teacher to shove the card up her ass. <laughs> yeah. And then he thought that was funny. And then, like, whenever uh, Samantha asks, what's a fuck ass? He, th- he like, starts laughing. So, it's, like, I like that, like, he, he you know, he, he gets it. And it's, like the mom on the like mama darko she was like always like she was just like kind of everything was reflected upon her she was just like kind of really like taking everything in and it was Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know i definitely the family vibes did stick out to me big time um in in rewatching this film so it was super great to revisit this movie high and i appreciate you um joining me and suggesting the movie for the podcast um you are always working on so many like wonderful writing things in the horror community uh what's some stuff that you got going on recently uh well i got my my gender-based horror column revived uh it was first on dread central and then uh, that didn't pan out, and then it went to uh, Fangoria.com, and then that didn't pan out, and now Fangoria is revived under new ownership, and with that, my column uh, rated XXXY will be in the print issues moving forward. Not online, but in the print issues. So if you get a subscription to Fangoria, you can see my work every time. Oh, that is so excited, because I know like so many people were bummed out with uh, whenever we didn't think that Fangoria was gonna like can be able to continue on and like 
I mean, it's the greatest thing. I didn't get my subscription until um, not too long ago, but I love it. Like, you know, I'm, I've never been a big physical media person, but like Fangoria is just like, it's that little extra something, something, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, I love it. And then weren't you, were you in um, the first um, publication of uh, for We Are Horror, right? Or were I you was, in this re- and yeah. I will be in the next one too. Uh, I wrote for, um, I wrote about, what did I write about for the first one? It was Lake Bottom. I wrote about the movie Lake Bottom, which I think is kind of underseen among the, 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 uh, I guess you could call it found footage. I don't know. It's, it's one of those movies where you, you recreate these, these characters go to a scene of an infamous crime and try to recreate the events or try to investigate the events and things pan out poorly for them. We know these movies, but this one was really interesting to me. So I wrote about it for, uh, we are horror. And next month I will be covering good night, mommy, another underseen film for we are horror. And that's another great publication. If you get a chance, uh, subscribe to their Patreon. Uh, they are putting up a lot of voices that don't normally get a seat at the table. And so it's uh, it's a great read, a lot of really great takes and, and really great interpretations of films uh, through the lens of personal experiences that we don't normally get to see. And so, yes, We Are Horror and Fangoria are, are the places where my work is going to be seen next. Yes. Like, um, I mean, We Are Horror has just like been such a wonderful collective of like all the writers and contributors that have went into it. Like, I absolutely love um, the first two issues so far. Um, and I just love your work in general. So thank you one more time for stopping by the Blade Blunt Cinema Club. I greatly appreciate it. I will have Anya's social media stuff in the links in the description. But that is all we have for this week's episode of the Blade Blunt Cinema Club. New episodes every Tuesday. Tune in next week as we have a triple feature with a couple of the members of Something Ghoulish. Make sure you are following the Twitter and Instagram page at BloodyBluntCC. And until next time, guys, stay lifted.